Hello, welcome to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Todd Hunter. Our guest today is Rick Richardson. Rick's an old friend of mine. He's a teacher at Wheaton College. We've done a lot of things together. And whenever I read a book that Rick has written or I hear him teach, I always feel schooled in the best way about the things I care about in evangelism. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and looking forward to you hearing it. Rick Richardson, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. I, I think I'm going to go public with something. I'm, I'm a bit of a fan. Uh, you know, we've been friends over the years, but even before we were friends, I was a, I was a big fan. I think I'm a big fan of it. Well, I don't think. I know I'm a big fan of InterVarsity in general. I'm a big fan of the work you've done over the years and your various books. They've helped me so much. So thanks for being on the C4SO podcast. Yeah, we, it's been mutual, and you're right. We have a friendship going back almost to your vineyard days. But uh, and then Yeah, I can't remember when we first met. Maybe when I was president of Alpha? Yeah, when you were president of Alpha, we started conferencing together. Okay, <laughs> so. so that would have been before 2008. So you're right. We've been, we've been uh, pals for a good while now. Yeah, and, and share a lot of resonance about evangelism and Anglicanism and all the yeah. rest. Yes, we should say that Rick is an Anglican priest, so we got that going for us too. So you're, you're yeah, you fit right into the C4SO podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Rick, our audience is, um, I would say mostly clergy, but also people who work in and adjacent to churches. And some of the clergy who listen wouldn't be Anglican, but the, but, but the majority uh, would be Anglican. And so I want to talk to you today, Rick, just about what's going on in evangelism. And the reason I wanted to do this is that I just feel like I know intuitively that evangelism is getting harder and harder. You know, we're both also fans of uh, Becky Pippert. And you remember when Salt Shaker came out in what, 79 or something? Yeah, 79, I think. Yeah. And remember on the back of the book, it said, evangelism's never been more difficult. Yes. And when you and Becky and I used to work together in Alpha, I used to tease her like, oh man, that's more true now than ever. Yeah. And it still feels more true now than ever. I, I, I honestly am not, I don't feel anything critical about this. It's just an observation that it just seems to me in, in and through local churches that fewer and fewer people are coming to Christ. And, and I know that can be discouraging for churches and clergy. It can even cause guilt and shame. So I want you and I to just have a conversation today that hopefully could give people a, a bit more confidence and maybe even a little joy at the task. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great goal. I, I'd agree with you that uh, I, I think evangelism, you know, in a sense, it's becoming harder, but we're also becoming less optimistic about evangelism. Yes. And I think some of that's realistic based on culture, but but some of it is actually more what social media and stats and research are doing to our perceptions yes. of, of receptivity out there. And uh, and then also, you know, there's a trajectory, Bishop, to movements. Yes. And movements, as they become more successful in a culture, tend to lose some of the more spiritual emphases that actually made them ascendant. Yeah. And they start to dissolve into the culture. And I think to some degree, we're dissolving into the issues of our time and losing some of the spiritual core and vibrancy and vitality that drove us to the kind of growth that we yeah. experienced into the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s and, and even 90s. We, we, then yeah. we plateaued. But right. part of it's our success economically 
and mm. numerically and culturally that has led to an internal lack of focus and optimism about evangelism. And then we also deal with some of the cultural headwinds. Yeah. So I should have done this work. I'm sorry, Rick. I, I just think of us being friends. But now all of a sudden I'm I'm um, forgetting the title of your book that you wrote to say that actually we can do this. Well, I don't know that that was your latest book, but what was that book I'm referring it to? It was. I'm, I'm working on a new one on Gen Z on these issues, but it was You Found Me. Yes, right. You Found Me. I want everybody to hear that because that was such an encouraging book to me as Rick walks us through the challenges and the opportunities that are extant in culture today. So You Found Me was, yeah, all your books are helpful, but that was super helpful. Yeah, thanks a lot. You you did endorse it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I did with a big smile on my face. And, and probably you read at least three or four pages to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I skimmed. I skimmed three or four pages. No, I'm such a I'm such a fan of evangelism. I mean, you've heard me say this that you know when I was converted at 19 in Calvary Chapel at Greg Laurie's church. You know, I just thought, yeah, I just want to be the next Billy Graham. You know, I just thought yes. that's what Christians do. Or I now I jokingly say I would have settled for being the next Greg Laurie, you know, that because, you know, you sort of imprint right on the place where you got converted. And so I've always said of myself, and as you know, Nicky Gumbel used to say this, that the whole reason he invented Alpha was that he himself was a frustrated personal evangelist. And I would say that I've always felt like I had a a higher regard and a higher hope for evangelism than I've personally often felt like I would, I could execute on. I mean, I think a lot of times we have a picture of what evangelism ought to look like when it's yeah. quote unquote successful. Right. I think all of us feel like we fall short and, uh, in a lot of ways we need to reimagine or mm -hmm. re-paradigm evangelism. All right. So that's a good segue, Rick. And nobody I know who's, you know, better at this kind of stuff than you. You know, if you're our age, you know, Rick and I would be in our 60s, although Rick younger than I, um, you know, we kind of had imprinted on us the Graham era, the sort of Christianity Today, uh, Harold Ockengay, um, yeah, I'm not going to forget some of the names now, but, you know, that that collection of guys around Graham and CT that that, you know, created what we now think of evangelicalism out of fundamentalism. And even I think young people know that that kind of dominated uh, evangelism. Like, I think for most Americans, if you're just playing word association, you say evangelism, many, many people would just say Billy Graham. Yeah. And, and of course, then that makes them think of crusade evangelism and all that. So over the last 70 years of sort of from Graham to today, and maybe I'd love to hear you even accent a little bit of the last 15 or so years, you know, when Graham was not public. How do you think about those last 70 years? And what would be like a quick review of those 70 years? Yeah, you know, Exponential, the conference on mm -hmm. churches, had me do a video on that question. Oh, they did? Okay. And, uh, and it, 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 that was a very fun project. And, uh, you know, I had a powerful experience as I worked on it. I, one of the interesting things, Todd, that I think is... is uh, you know, about about it is a lot of our imagination methods and tools came out of the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah. The time of Billy Graham's height, you know, yes. height and Bill mm -hmm. Bright. Yes. Kind of, yeah. Bill Bright for the individual, 
Yes. Uh, Billy Graham for the Crusader, massive Angela. That's right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but we still use the napkin approach to communicating mm-hmm. the gospel. Often our 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 methods and our our message is 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 basically a boiled down version of what Billy Graham and Bill Bright did. And and there's a good thing about that because there is a power to the gospel that's enduring. And uh, those themes are certainly central to the gospel. But Often what you see since the 50s or 60s is you see the next movement in evangelism tried to compensate for the weaknesses of the movement that went before. Mm. Graham and Bill Bright taught people how to very simply communicate the gospel and invite them to faith. Yeah. What we faced, though, was the gospel didn't call us to make decisions. The gospel, you know, Jesus called us to make disciples. Right. And so the weakness then was the kind of follow-up, the disciple-making process. So Billy Graham went to a man named Dawson Trotman who founded the Navigators Mm -hmm. and basically uh, had him develop a whole process of Mm disciple-making. And it happened through local churches. But but they they integrated into crusades and a mass evangelism that whole process of disciple making. Well, that uh, then led to people saying, "Okay, that's great to invite people to faith. Great to disciple them. But our discipleship seems to be so pietistic and individualistic and spiritual. Mm. It yeah. doesn't seem to address the world, the issues we're facing, right. the justice issues, the social concerns. Mm-hmm. So people like John Perkins and others, God raised them up to sort of say, hey, uh, we don't just say the gospel. We've got to be the gospel. Right. And the way we be the gospel is in the presence of Christ, we give a cup of cold water to mm-hmm. those who need that. We we have good news for the poor. We, we engage. Uh, and John Perkins has this very moving kind of conversation about how he grew up with sharecropper parents, with a sharecropper yeah. mom, and, and he just hears her voice mm. in the back of his head that if he doesn't have good news for her, uh. people like her, then he doesn't have good news. Yeah, and and uh, he reflected on the end of his life. He said, uh, "You know, I'm a, I'm going to meet her, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and when I meet her, I want to be able to say my life counted mm-hmm. because I had good news. Yeah, for people like her. Yeah, and uh, so, but what happened then is we kind of we went from individualism to starting to care about social issues, but then we got activist and burned out. Mm-hmm. And some people, you would know some of these, Todd. Yeah, that we need not just words and deeds; we need power. Yeah, and uh, and so your buddy John Wimber came mm-hmm. along and said, you know, it's not just uh, word and deed; it's also sign. It's also yeah. the presence of Christ breaking into lives. And you know, John Wimber, as you know, said, "Hey, uh, I." I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? Yeah, We're all right. going to be kind of fools as yeah. we go through life, and especially in evangelism. Uh, but, you know, he has this whole story of spending 10 months praying, praying for people and having them get worse. Yeah, yeah. But, but God brought a renewal through him and through Calvary Chapel. Yeah, and that, well, remember John's famous book was Power Evangelism. That's right. Yeah. And uh, but very wonderful stories about the Spirit of God and collaborating with the Spirit of God, not just doing it on our own. But one of the kind of themes of all of those views of evangelism is they tend to be more individualistic. 
and uh, focused on the individual. And so then folks started to think about the church and the church church's place. Yeah. Uh, Donald McGavran was one of the first people that did this, this in his studies in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the seeker church movement right. was a kind of an attempt to say, conversion happens in the church. We, we need to preach the gospel and we need people in our communities to, you know, only be one week away from the communication of the gospel in the context of a church, because we're not just looking for people to make decisions. We're looking for people to be inaugurated into the kingdom yeah, and incorporated into the people of God. So that was one model of community. Then there was a countercultural model of community, people like Shane Claiborne and others. And now I think one of the primary ways people are pursuing evangelism and witness is through small groups and missional communities. Yeah, And I think you can sort of talk about the heydays of each of those models and then how each one tried to address what was missing yeah. uh, in the earlier model. And, and so my approach has been, boy, do what you do best and add to it what you're missing, but mm-hmm. add around what you do best what you're missing. Uh, and, and also have a lot of generosity to the different ways God, uh, God raises up evangelism. So <clears throat> do you have what feels to you, Rick, you know, right here today, 2022, um, a, a model or a set of habits or practices that you think emerge out of that story? Or is it, I think you and I have talked about this before, that it seems to me in the same way a person has a gift mix a congregation has a charism. They have like a, a conglomerate of gift mixes that roll up into kind of like a personality or a temperament for a church. And that then that church ought to try to discern its sort of corporate capacities from God, the context in which that church finds itself, and from that derive their own specific set of practices. So do you prefer that, or do you think there really is a more universal set of practices that are available to us today that you would suggest? I, I'm really with you. For, I mean, you're, you're kind of the, the body of Christ, the different mm-hmm. gifts, like charism on each church. Uh, one of my friends calls it the critical gospel impact of your church. Mm. You identify the critical gospel impact of your church. And uh, I think that's a better approach than uh, some universal way yeah. to reach out. And the critical gospel impact is, is based on your strengths mm-hmm. and gifts. It's also based on your location right, and the needs that are around you and where those things match. And so I think every church needs to go through that kind of a reflection and discernment process about their critical gospel impact. Yeah. Good. So we'll come back to um, a bit more practical things as we end, but um, say a word or two about how would a church begin to discern that? What would be the listening processes or the noticing processes that a church might come to see what their critical impact could be? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, one of the critical pieces of that is that whoever the leader is, whoever the senior pastor is, I think... uh, needs to be self-reflective and and needs to think about what's been on their heart, what's their practice. One of the things that you and I both know is an awful lot of people 
gets, if you will, sucked into the inward focus of their congregation. You know, their mm-hmm. people contribute so that they get their needs and the needs of their kids met. Right. And, and I think a big part of it in, the, in identifying and discerning your critical gospel impact is a senior leader has to stay mission focused. Yeah. And that's not easy. And they need a lot of encouragement and a lot of uh, support and, and gracious accountability and storytelling. And so that that I think is one piece of it. I think a pastor who wants to help a church define that, who's not on mission, you know, him or herself, right, uh, is uh, is going to have uh, a trouble yeah. leading from an authentic place. Yes. So, so I think that's one big issue. I think a, a second is uh, there's some mix of gospel communication and gospel demonstration. Yeah. That's unique to each church. Uh, and but what we found as we looked at churches across the country, churches that are what we call conversion communities, really growing primarily through new believers, are doing both pretty well. Okay, and that's the universal thing. Okay, is they have some need in their community they're meeting, some way they're demonstrating the gospel. Yeah. And they have some way they're communicating the gospel while they're demonstrating the gospel yeah. and inviting people to faith. So where is that for you as a church? What, yeah. what, uh, what's a need you're involved in? And are you demonstrating the gospel and communicating the gospel? And how can yeah. those be strengthened for you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you remember Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., Gordon Cosby and Elizabeth O'Connor. And, um, you know, they're their mantra, at least from Elizabeth's book, you know, was journey inward, journey outward. So Church of the Savior was completely focused on congregational care and the journey inward of the transformation of the human soul. But as you know, we're also passionately committed to the neighborhood they were in, that Adams Morgan neighborhood, and they literally changed that neighborhood simultaneously to making real saints. It's such an amazing (laughs) example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my church, LaSalle Street Church, for a lot of years, was yeah. an urban church in Chicago, mm-hmm. bridging Cabrini Green Housing Project, which no longer exists, but did for many decades. Yeah. And the Gold Coast neighborhood of Chicago. Mm. And we modeled ourselves after Church of the Savior. And, yeah. And we started outreach ministries in Cabrini Green, um, but we also tried to live that inward journey. And, and yeah. uh, that's churches have to find that place where they they can bridge uh, from their church into a community need yeah and, and and do that both that journey inward and that journey outward yeah okay Rick let's switch gears and um, let's talk a bit about what feels like the elephant in the room and that is, how the church often just feels back on its heels these days. We're very aware of the current reputation of the church and not least because of the sexual scandals and the Roman church or the Southern Baptist convention or the, you know, Mars Hill or whatever, you know, it just seems to be in everybody's face. And we all have read enough about the nuns and duns and cynical skeptics and that sort of thing. Um, I found a couple of stats as I was getting ready for our conversation this morning uh, from a, a group called Telling the Gospel. And this, I think, was from last year, where they say that unchurched people are not coming back to church. 
that 66% of the people surveyed said they were unlikely to attend a church service anytime soon. And almost half, 49%, said they're very unlikely to attend a church service. But their uh, research went on to say that unchurched people are interested in the faith. And this is, you know, if you're a church person, this is the dichotomy that drives you crazy. Like, oh, they, remember Dan Kimball's old book, uh, They Like Jesus But Not the Church? <laughs> you know, that's what this research seems to say. That's a whopping 79% said that if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind talking about that person's faith with them. So let's say a bit, again, this is where InterVarsity and you and others have just done such great work. What do you say to a pastor listening to us today who feels in their guts that people don't like me or they don't like the church, but I want to be involved in evangelism. How do people work that out? Yeah, that, there's a few fun things I'd, I'd want to say. One, just to take that stat of 66%, we, mm-hmm. we did a similar study and uh, it, it was actually pre-COVID and then in COVID, it's actually continuing to stay pretty much the same. Uh, and another way to say the stat you said is 34% of the people expect, unchurched people expect to attend church. Yeah. And and actually the way we asked it, attend church regularly in the future. And it turns out 39% of millennial unchurched people expect to, church, expect to attend church regularly in the future. So to me, that's not as discouraging <clears throat> as it sounds when you say it the positive way. One out of three unchurched people. <laughs> this is why I loved your book right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of fun. Here's the second fun thing. I have just spent the last year doing 22 focus groups of Gen mm-hmm. Z. Folks. Okay. Black, and remind everybody uh, what comprises Gen Z. Gen Z is now 25 years old at max. So it's five years old to 25 years old. Okay. And uh, they, uh, and I mainly did 18 to 25. And, uh, and this was, this was pretty fun time. Uh, as I talked with them, I heard uh, unchurched ones, uh, very diverse. I heard really uh, good news and, and bad news. I heard a good news, bad news kind of thing. Yeah. The, 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 the bad news was that most of them had a negative perception of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. They felt like the church and, and uh, you know, was not a place they wanted to go to. It wasn't you know it, it's not that it was harming people but it just isn't doesn't give the answers to the spiritual question uh, okay asking. yeah that was the bad news here was the good news i asked them so when were you traumatized or when were you hurt or when did you have a negative experience with christians or a church this this was pretty fun pretty pretty amazing i had almost nobody in 22 focus groups Give me specific examples. Now the Christians did. Yeah, they had mixed examples, but the unchurched people, they said, "Oh, I haven't had any personally traumatizing experiences. I, like, I have this aunt, or I have this grandmother, I have yeah. this friend, regular friends that they're actually really loving people. I love to talk to them. Uh, I, I think they're, uh, you know, some of the kindest people I know. They actually had had no, yeah, almost." No negative experiences underlying the negative perceptions. And one woman just captured it perfectly for me. She said, uh, I, I believe 
I don't have any negative personal experiences in this life, but in a past life, I'm convinced I was burned at the stake as a witch. Hmm. And that that's had a <laughs> real impact on me. I yeah. thought, wow, yeah. that's where you got to go. Yeah, how do we engage that? Where's that in the four spiritual laws, right? The good news is actually that as an individual, they are, they're very open to conversations, spiritual engagement, but they have a negative view of the church's institution. And so, and here's what's interesting about that. Gallup has tracked that since the 1970s. Right. Basically, trust of every institution yes. has gone down by about half. Yeah. Uh, and that's true with the institutional church. There's a, there's a negative stereotype of churches based on social media and so forth. And yet, actually a positive view of Christians that they know and of having conversations with most of the Christians that they know. Yeah. So Rick, thinking of all the coaching you've done over your life, both on with campus leaders and um, clergy and denominational leaders and that sort of thing, um, how do we get past the fear, mm. the discomfort that people feel? that leaders feel when they just hear the word evangelism, like, or maybe you can think of a story of somebody who was totally in the grip of that cluster, maybe of shame, fear, guilt, discomfort, and mm -hmm. found their way out of it. Cause I just think that's so real for so many people. Yeah. It's been interesting in my church because um, when people hear the word evangelism, they tend to feel intimidated or fearful or guilty or ashamed. Yeah, And uh, so it's actually not for most people in our churches a helpful word to use to motivate or engage people in evangelism. We need other paradigms. Uh, a couple that I've heard recently, churches, I've done a lot with the blessed practices, which mm. I love. It's begin with prayer, listen, eat, yeah. serve, and share. And there's simple practices about how you bless people who are far from Jesus. And what I found when I use those is everybody wants to do those. Yeah. They're not demotivated or shamed by that. I have another church who says, you know, we just try to get people building good relationships. And we teach them, be curious. Just ask questions. Be caring. Just try to ask them for help and provide help to them. Yeah. Be attentive to any needs that come up. And then be honest about who you are. Just be authentic mm -hmm. about your story. And uh, I think those ways of recapturing uh, that. So I, I have a lot of stories. I've seen a lot of people. Um, we work with uh, leadership groups and churches. And basically, we the biggest thing that we do is, and you do this too. I know you've talked about triads and getting people mm -hmm. to be together. And if people can get together even once a month, and just share stories about conversations yeah. and about ways they've blessed others. What we, I've seen again and again is people get excited. I think of an introvert recently that I knew who wanted to have nothing to do with evangelism. And after three or four months of just sharing stories, suddenly they got on fire. They were really mm. excited about blessing people. Yeah, and They started sharing a lot of those kinds of stories. So I think if we reframe evangelism, and then help people have at least a monthly venue to talk about little steps they're taking. Yeah. 
I think it can radically change for people. Yeah. So Rick, just before we get to some practical things, uh, I don't know when you did the work for You Found Me, but let's say 17 and 18 or whatever, the book came out in 19. Mm -hmm. What endures for you? What two or three encouraging statistics or stories that endure for you that you think would be encouraging for our audience to hear today? Now that you've had three years of reflection, three years of people commenting to you about the book. Yeah. So one of the things I would say is don't be in, intimidated by the nuns. Mm. Uh, that was my research. Clue. And let's, sorry, Rick, let's remind everybody what a nun is. So a nun is a person on the survey who, when asked what's your religious uh, preference, they say none. Or when asked what your religious identification is, they say none. Right. And, and then the duns are slightly different. They're the ones who have left church. That's right. right. And yeah. but, but what was interesting about them, Todd, is that uh, the duns... Uh, are just people who have at some point in the past attended church. And most of them, done is a misnomer. Okay. Because it's not that they are done with church. It's just that they're not connected right now. So yeah. two-thirds of the duns left just because they moved or their situation changed, or they just didn't take the effort because they didn't feel like the church was compelling or relevant enough yeah connect in the new place that they went so they're not done with the church they're just disconnected yeah Uh, one third of the duns said yeah there was some trust issue that contributed to my drifting away Mm -hmm. so those are the duns i think one third of the people we call duns are actually yeah they're like i don't know if i want to go back because of a trust issue so That, that's one thing. And then, so don't be intimidated by the duns. Find out why they're done. Yeah. Um, and then, with regard to the nuns, realize, so 45% of Gen Z, uh, 18 to 25, 45% are nuns. 35% identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. Of the 45%, only 7% of that are atheists, plus 6% are, are agnostics. So 31%, a third of all the Gen Z, are nothing in particular. Mm. And those folks actually are just saying, I don't want to identify with some institution. Mm. But I'm open to spirituality. I'm, so we asked, how, you know, do you think Christian faith is harmful to people? A bunch of atheists said yes. Half of that number of agnostics said yes. Only 3% of nothing in particulars said that Christian faith is harmful for society. So, so that's one, uh, one example. I think a story that I would tell is my relationship with my friend, Barry. Uh, I moved from Wheaton down to, uh, Chicago, the South loop, the South loop of Chicago. And I can say this on a more Anglican podcast. One day I was driving home and, Felt like I had to get a really choice, tasty, outstanding bottle of wine and a couple of appetizers and, and text them to come on over for, you know, because we just met them and they'd welcomed us. And yeah. so the two of them, Barry and Juan, came over. We had a fabulous time. And the one of them, Juan, was a wine connoisseur. Mm. So I felt like that nudge God gave me to get a yeah. really <laughs> outstanding <laughs> yeah. bottle of wine was a nudge from God. That was a yeah. nudge the spirit 
And uh, so they loved it. They invited us the next week over to dinner with their friendship group. Mm. And that's what I found is uh, outreach is a lot connecting to a person. Yeah. And then it's with them connecting to their friendship group. And they opened their whole friendship group to us. And I gave my theory of marriage, which, uh, Bishop, I wouldn't even want to share it with you because you would say, <laughs> well, I don't know, Rick. I, I, would, I, yeah. you know, I don't even know if it would pass muster, but they loved it. Yeah. And one of the guys kind of said, one of the two, it's gay guys. Half the yeah. couples on my floor were gay guy couples. He said, uh, would you give me relationship counseling? And, uh, and I, and I, I was, I felt over my head. I felt like yeah. <laughs> I'll do, but sure. My wife and I'd be glad to do that. And we met and over a two year period, first we talked about life. Then we dealt with issues of enmeshment and identity. What I find is all, all relationships have issues that come up again and again. Right. Yeah. That we can minister to and speak the gospel into. So we would pray for him. Then we started uh, reading books. And not long ago, he kneeled in my living room and he gave his mm -hmm. life to Christ. The two of them had broken up. And uh, I just watched how much interest he'd had. Mm -hmm. I watched how much he'd warmed to Christ as we talked. And then I watched him give his life to Christ. And it was in during a moment of pain. But also, you know, freedom and liberation and joy. And so uh, the other guy didn't and they broke up. But he's actually now a professor at Cambridge University. I was yeah. with him, Todd, just this last weekend. Okay, And cool. he and I spent about five hours and uh, we went down several layers in our relationship and got to really hard issues. I confronted and challenged him on a number of things. And uh, I just was blown away by how thankful he was, how much he'd been influenced toward Christ. This yeah. is a guy who studied <clears throat> queer theory for his doctorate. Okay. And he's been influenced toward Christ. And wow. uh, there, there's just so much more opportunity and receptivity than we realize. Yeah, that's, that's what I remember so taking away from your book, uh, You Found Me. But just thinking of our conversation today, what I hear you saying is there is a powerful mix of the news or what we might call popular sociology of religion that gives us all these drastically negative statistics. And those easily adhere to what already exists in us of fear, disappointment, guilt, shame with regard to evangelism, and that that's kind of a toxic mix. But what I hear you saying is humanize the statistics. Like, don't let the statistics be the, what drives you, but let relationships with real human beings. Yes. Yeah, that you're, you're just, I, I feel that with all the passion in me, that mm -hmm. if we'll humanize them and be in relationships and just be curious about people and ask questions and mutually care for each other. Yeah. And look for opportunities to ask about spiritual things and to have conversations it's stunning what happens. And the biggest barrier to our witness is often our preconceptions and stereotypes, just like people out in the culture have stereotypes about the church. We have stereotypes about people in the culture. Uh, that's so helpful. Stereotypes yeah. are fighting each other and driving yeah. us apart. And yeah. it doesn't need to happen. Super helpful, Rick. Thank you. All right. In our last segment here, let's do a bit of a lightning round. Um, I can just hear some of our guests today, you know, thinking to themselves, 
Okay, you know, I kind of want to get started a little bit. So I'd, I'd like you to just quickly talk about this on four levels. If you think of a whole church, what might they do to get started? If you think of church programs, you know, like Alpha or something or whatever, how, you know, how would they get going? Uh, you've already mentioned small groups, maybe another sentence or two about that. And then about individual, you know, people, you know, witnessing or whatever. So I'll take you through one at a time. So if a church thought, I want to dip my toes in these waters. What's Coach Rick say? What, where, where do you start? Yeah. Okay. So I talked about the bigger issue of finding your critical gospel impact. Yeah. In terms of where you start, uh, I, I think where you start is on the issue of how do we as a church belong somewhere out there in our culture? Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of times, and Todd, you and I both know this language, people have to belong before they believe because they yes. have to try on Christian identity. But one reason often people don't belong to us before they believe is we don't belong to them. Mm. And what I, what I mean by that is pick one place as a church to begin to belong. If you mm. have a principle grade school principal, high school yeah. principal in your church who leads a high school or a grade school, figure out a way to strengthen how much you as a church belong. Right. Just pick one place to start with. Because mm. until Rick. there's relationships, there's no bridge. Yeah. And what we found is it's churches that are doing good in the community who are also doing a good job communicating their story and their spiritual commitments. Yeah. Those are the churches that see new believers. So just pick a place. Yeah. To begin to belong out there. So that's a, that's, a, that's a, actually, that's a great thought. It's fundamental and something people could execute on. So thank you. So what if a church just in their temperament teams uh, is a little bit more programmatically oriented and that's part of their history and, you know, you and I would have a mutual friend, Gary Poole from Willow Creek, uh, you know, with seeker small groups. And then, of course, Alpha. Um, is What's new, if anything, about, you know, thinking about evangelism being a programmatic part of a church life? Yeah. So I think uh, one of the helpful uh, things there is I have a, a good friend named Doug Schaup and Don Everts is mm-hmm. uh, there. They've done book. A book on the thresholds of post-conversion, yes. yeah. and they talk about you know the first threshold is build some trust, the second threshold is uh, generate curiosity, the third threshold is help them start to be open to change, the fourth mm-hmm. is giving the, give them a place to really seek, yeah, uh, and then the fifth is challenge them to come to Christ, and so uh, and then disciple them. So uh, that's been helpful handles. One of the things I think a church can do is think about. Uh, you know, where do we have, what's our entry point mm. for people? What's our entry point program? So sorry to interrupt, Rick, but maybe I hear you saying, what's the name of Shop and Everett's book again? I know it. Oh, that once was lost. Yeah, I once was lost. So are you saying that maybe a church, uh, programmatic sounds bigger than I mean it, but maybe a church could find approaches to each one of those barriers. Is that what you're getting at? Exactly. Okay. So how do we start building trust? With, and so that's mm-hmm. the belong out there thing. that I do. Yeah. Uh, but it also can be do a social uh, program and invite 
unchurched people to join you yeah. in doing that act of service. That's another great way to build trust. Generate curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, offer a book club. Yeah. Uh, that talks about books that might have some spiritual themes, but don't make it too spiritual at that point. Yeah. Uh, then openness to change. Uh, that's where you start to move into things like alpha or small groups. or mm-hmm. And so on the openness to change and then also on the seeking. Yeah. You need some place for people to be able to start seeking Christ and asking those. So I think seeker small groups, alpha, those are fantastic things on that kind yeah. of a threshold. Some churches say, well, we want our Sunday service to be that. Yeah. That's great. But if you want your Sunday service to be that, pastors, you actually have to think about how do I lower the defenses people might have to the liturgy? Mm-hmm. You have to start thinking about how do I preach in ways that I'm preaching as if there are already curious people out there looking yeah. to see. Because until you start preaching that way, your people will never bring people. Yeah. And uh, so what? So identifying your entry point, and that might yeah. be a book club, a movie club, and it could be, you know, on one of those early thresholds, uh, but you have to have that place as a church where people enter into your community, where they can belong, yeah. where they believe. Yeah. So I know you and I talked about this a lot over the years, but I believe the genius of secret small groups or... Alpha, the cur- the kernel genius is it's conversational. Yeah. And like on Alpha, you know, we tried so hard to make relationally, intellectually, emotionally honest spaces in which people could actually answer the question, what do you think or feel about what you just heard about who is Jesus or why did he die or the authority of scripture or whatever. So I just want to underscore that for everybody listening today that there's lots of ways of doing this, but everything Rick's telling us, it has to be executed, in my view, in conversational ways. It can't be top down. Yeah. And to unpack your term conversational, just and connected to research, mm-hmm. um, conversational for you, I know, means relational. I know it yeah. means that there's a, there's a kind of a relational integrity, authenticity, mm-hmm. and matrix for the conversation where it's dialogue, you go back and forth, you honor each other, you honor right. each other. You know, Alpha teaches you, doesn't matter what people say, tell them, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And value what they say, even if to you it's yeah. so far out there, you're like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like when, when she said she'd been burned at the stake, as, yeah. Yes. I should go, oh, come on. Yeah. yeah. Said, wow, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so that, and then I want to add one more word to that your view of mm-hmm. conversational that I know is true for you. It's hospitable. Yes, absolutely. I love the biblical value of hospitality. Yes. Hospitality is being welcome and opening and creating right. space for the other, the stranger. Yeah. The non-believer, the person who's not like you. I don't teach people need the seeker model of evangelism in their church. I teach that they need the hospitality model. Yes, absolutely. And as you know from your work with me, the best Alpha courses always had amazing gifts of hospitality, always. Always. And here's, here's the thing that connects to the research, Todd. The biggest predictive factor for churches being conversion communities going through, growing through new believers 
mm-hmm. is this hospitality factor. Mm-hmm. That is actually the most predictive factor. Uh, thanks, Rick. That's really helpful. That's super helpful. Uh, all right. So lastly, you know, the, the people in our congregations that are also fearful of evangelism, but maybe want to dip their toe in the water. What's the, what's the latest thinking about quote witnessing? You know, that was a big word, you know, in the Billy Graham era and it was very positive. And then it became, you know, something that is, you know, less positive. What would, what do you think in these days about the individual person living their life and being a witness? Yeah. So the research we've been doing, we've been listening to young adults and mm-hmm. uh, and listening to what they're saying. And, and so here's a few lessons from the latest stuff I'm hearing them say. Uh, number one, they have stereotypes that are not based necessarily in their personal experience, but based in the cultural milieu that we uh, live in. And until we identify those and let them say those and welcome them communicating their stereotypes. So uh-huh. asking questions like, why do you think there's sort of a negative feeling about the church these days? Mm. And that kind of question can be very quickly, very powerful for people who are unchurched to immediately express things that they think and wonder about or are concerned about. And it gives you the opportunity to become a person who doesn't reinforce those, but actually feels the same way they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's not a moment to get defensive. So that's one. Mm. Second, one of the things we're finding is that one of the biggest barriers for people today in church uh, is that the con. It's it's very interesting. You mentioned conversation. Yeah, there are new conversational rules. Yes, in yeah. our culture, and I think one of the biggest ways we can grow in our witness is to become more attuned to the conversational rules. Mm. So one of the things we tend to do when we're trained in evangelism is, oh, what's my answer to this question? Yeah, we're trained to talk. We're trying to talk. Yeah. And actually, uh, that's exactly what tends to, you know, shut the conversation down initially. Yeah. What the young adults told us was, they, and these were churched and unchurched, I don't care what your answer is. I believe you'll have answers. I I want to respect those, and I will. And I will listen and be influenced. But how we talk about those and get Mm -hmm. to those is the key for me. That's so great, Rick. The conversation. And part of what they keep telling us is it's got to be raw and real and messy. If you've got simple answers and rational explanations, and you're willing to just shortcut the conversation and not not be real about your pain, your struggles, your failures, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in that kind of a conversation. Yeah. Well, our guest today has been my friend, uh, the Reverend Dr. Rick Richardson. Uh, Rick's a professor of evangelism and leadership at Wheaton and also directs the Church Evangelism and Research Institute there. He's an Anglican priest and not only has been a good friend, but somebody who's taught me so much about evangelism. And Rick, as you know, I care very much that C4SO churches are engaged one way or another uh, in the task of evangelism. So thank you so much for helping us along those lines today. You know, I I respect you and love you. Thank you, Rick. 
So thankful for you. Right your- back at you. We got a mutual admiration society going here. Amen. <laughs> All right. Lots of love to you. Thanks so much.